Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. The season of Advent, as an official season in the shape that we know it now, with four Sundays preceding Christmas Eve, was not a thing in the time of Pope St. Leo the Great. There was a shape already beginning to form of looking toward and expecting the coming of Christ, given that December was the end both of the uh, agriculture year and the um, Western Roman civil year. And so naturally at the end of the year, at the end of, you know, uh, time measured by men, it, it is a natural thing to look toward the coming of Christ and the end of all things. And so a general expectation of the second advent of Christ became to be a feature of Western church life uh, at the time of St. Leo. But by the time of St. Gregory the Great, um, this was more well-established, and St. Gregory codified the, the scriptures, the shape of advent as we have it now. And St. Gregory, of course, sent Augustine, St. Augustine to Canterbury, not St. Augustine of Hippo, but St. Augustine, who would become Augustine of Canterbury, sent him to the pagan English people, the Anglo-Saxons in England, to evangelize them. Now, there was British Christianity in the British Isles already, but these were mostly among the Celtic peoples in, in their areas and didn't mix much with the Anglo-Saxons. But St. Augustine going to the pagan Anglo-Saxons, Anglo-Saxons brought Roman Christianity to them. When they accepted his message and allowed him to preach and set up churches throughout uh, the, the kingdom of Kent first, and then uh, later this would spread to other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, eventually England became Christianized. And there was you know some councils to figure out what to do with Uh, this Roman Christianity and uh, the Anglo-Saxons and the the older British Christianity, and they figured these things out. So by the end of the first millennium, there was a monastic, a monk in the British Isles in um, the Anglo-Saxon realm named Aelfric. He was an abbot who was, I think, a generation or two after the great St. Dunstan, who reformed a lot of the monasteries to to be more in line with the uh, Benedictine form of monasticism. And Elfric uh, was a consummate writer, very prolific writer of hagiography, homilies, biblical commentaries, and things like that. And so we have several of his homilies, two of which were for the season of Advent. And we actually have his sermon for the second Sunday of Advent with the gospel reading that we just heard today, already established um, by the end of the first millennium, 900s. I think Ilfric died in um, 1010. So this was before the schism. This was in, in England. And these are the words of an Anglo-Saxon abbot speaking on the gospel passage on the second Sunday of Advent where we are today. I think it's fascinating that a thousand years later, here we are in the church with the same gospel passage <clears throat> uh, on the second Sunday of Advent. And the words of this Anglo-Saxon monk 
from a thousand years ago still uh, still apply to the gospel reading that we heard, still ring, ring and resonate for us. So I'm going to read the homily of St. Elfric, and in doing so, um, I hope we recognize that Elfric is still a part of our church. We don't have his icon in the church, but through his words, I hope that uh, a semblance of his icon is here today. So from Aylfric on the second Sunday of Advent. The evangelist Luke wrote in this day's gospel that our Lord was speaking these words to his disciples concerning the signs which will happen before the ending of the world. The Lord said, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and on earth there shall be affliction of nations, etc. The Holy Gregory, he's talking about St. Gregory the Great, has expounded for us the obscurity of this gospel, thus beginning, The Lord, our Redeemer, is desirous to find us ready and therefore chide the evils which follow the sinicent, that is the, the fleshly world, that he might wean us from its love. He manifested how many sufferings will precede the ending of the world. If we will not dread God in sincerity, then at least, terrified with many tribulations, we may dread his approaching doom. That is judgment, Old English doom, uh, a judgment, a law. Here above in this lesson, Jesus said, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be everywhere and pestilence and hunger. And afterwards among them thus said, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on earth affliction of nations for the mingling of the sea waves and sound. Some of these signs have we have seen accomplished, and some we fear are to come. Verily, in these new days, nations have arisen against nations, and their affliction on earth has happened greater than we read in old books. Often earthquake in diverse places has overthrown many cities, as it happened in the days of Emperor Tiberius that 13 cities fell through an earthquake. With pestilence and with hunger, we are frequently afflicted. But we have not yet seen manifest signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. We read in astronomy that the sun is sometimes darkened by the intervention of the lunar orb. And also the full moon suddenly becomes dusky when it is deprived of the solar light by the shadow of the earth. Doesn't sound like an ignorant flat earther to me. There are also some stars beamed with light suddenly rising and quickly departing. And they, by their uprise, ever indicate something new. But the Lord did not mean these signs in the evangelical prophecy, but the awful signs which will precede the great day. Matthew the evangelist wrote more plainly of these signs, thus saying, Straightways after the great tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall give no light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be agitated, and then shall appear the sign of Christ's cross in the heavens, and all earthly powers shall mourn. The minglings of the sea and the sound of the waves have not yet unusually happened, uh, but when many of the before said signs have been fulfilled, there is no doubt that the few which are remaining will also be fulfilled. My brothers, these things are written that our minds may be vigilant through heedfulness, that through security they slacken not, nor through ignorance become void, but that terror ever occupy and attention to good works confirm them. The Lord said, Men shall wither for terror and for great awaiting the things which shall come over all the world, for the powers of the heaven shall be agitated. Then powers of heaven are angels and archangels, thrones, principalities, lordships, and powers. 
These hosts of angels will appear visible to our sights at the advent of the severe judge, that they may sternly exact from us that which the invisible creator patiently forbears. Then we shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great might and majesty. The Lord called himself the Son of Man oftener than the Son of God, from the humility of his assumed humanity, that he might admonish us with the nature which he received for us. He is truly Son of Man, and not Son of Min. And there is no other Son of one man but Christ alone. He's talking about uh, Christ's uh, birth from the Virgin Mary without a father. He will be manifested in might and in majesty to those who will not obey him while existing in humility, that then they may feel his might so much the more severely as they now will not bow their necks to his patience. These words are said to the reprobates. So all that follow, all that was just spoken are said to those who reject Christ. But here, Aelfric says, follow the words which comfort the chosen. That is, those who ultimately are the ones who choose Christ. Jesus said, when these wonders begin, then lift up your heads and behold, for your redemption approacheth. As if he had manifestly exhorted his chosen, when the torments of this world shall thicken, when the dread of the great doom shall appear, raise then your heads, that is, be glad in your minds, for then this world shall be ended, which ye loved not. Then shall be at hand the redemption which you sought. In holy writ, head is very frequently put for the mind of man, because the head directs the other members as the mind devises the thoughts. So when we lift up our heads, when we, when we lift up our heads, we raise our minds to the joys of the heavenly country. Those whom God loves are exhorted to be glad for the ending of the world, for when that passes away, which they love not, then certainly they will find that which they loved. Oh, let it not be that any believer who desires to see God mourn for the fall of the world. For it is written, whosoever will be a friend of this world will be accounted a foe of God. But he who rejoices not at the approach of the ending of the world manifests that he was its friend and then will be convicted that he is God's foe. But let friendship for this world depart from the hearts of every believing man and depart from them who believe the other life to come and really love it. They should mourn for the destruction of the world who have planted the root of their heart in its love, who seek not the life to come nor even believe in it. But we, who full well know the joys of the heavenly country, should unanimously hasten to it. It is for us to wish that it may go quickly and arrive by the shorter way, for this world is afflicted in manifold tribulations and with crosses tormented. What is this death-like life but a way, a road? Understand now what it is to faint through the toil of the way and yet not to desire the way to end. The Lord said, Behold, these fig trees and all the trees, when they sprout, then ye know that summer is near. So likewise, ye may know, when ye see these before said signs, that God's kingdom draweth near. Verily, by these words it is manifested that the fruit of this world is falling. It grows that it may fall. It sprouts that it may destroy with diseases whatsoever had before sprouted. This world is like to a senescent that is a fleshly man. In youth, the body is thriving with strong breast, with full and hale limbs. But in senile years, the man's st stature is bowed, his neck slackened, his face wrinkled, and his limbs all afflicted. 
His breast is tormented with sighs, and between his words his breath fails. Though disease sit not on him, yet too often his health is a disease to him. So it is with the world. At first it was thriving as in youth, it was growing in bodily health, and fat in abundance of good things, long in life, still in long peace. But now it is with age oppressed, as it were with frequent tribulations afflicted to death. My brothers, love not this world, which you see cannot long exist. Of this the apostle said, love not the world, nor anything that dwelleth on it, for whosoever loveth the world hath not love of God in him. Well is the kingdom of God compared with the summer season, for then the clouds of our dreariness pass away, and the days of life shine through the brightness of the eternal sun. All these before said things are with great certainty confirmed by his following sentence. Verily I say unto you, this tribe shall not pass away, or this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. These words the Lord spake to the Jewish tribe, that particular people, that generation, that their kin will not pass away through decay before the world ends. Of this sentence, the Apostle Paul said, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will first arise. Afterwards, we who live and shall be found in the body will be caught forth with the others in the clouds toward Christ so that we shall ever be with God. Comfort yourselves with these words. Also in the sentence, the evangelist Matthew agrees with these words. The Lord will send his angels with trumpet and loud voice, and they shall gather his chosen from the four winds, from all earthly boundaries to the high heavens. The apostle said, we who live. He did not mean himself by those words, but those who continue in life until the end of the world. By that it is likewise manifested that mankind will not wholly perish before the ending. This is interesting. He's saying, uh, by these words we know that the world, the cosmos, will not run down without mankind. Mankind will persevere until the end, until the coming of Christ. But that they will nevertheless have a short death who shall then be found in life. For heavenly fire will pass over all the world with one burning, and the dead will arise from their graves with that fire, and the living will be slain by the fire's heat, and straightways after requickened to eternity. <laughs> The fire will in no wise injure the righteous who had been cleansed from their sins, but whoever is uncleansed shall eat the fire's breath, and we shall all come to the doom, the judgment. The doom, or the judgment, will be deemed on no earthly field, but will be, as the apostle here above in this lesson said, that we shall be seized up in the clouds toward Christ through the air. And there will be the separation of righteous and impious men. The righteous will afterward dwell nowhere but with God in the kingdom of heaven. And the impious will nowhere but with the devil in hell torments. Jesus concluded this gospel with these words. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Heaven and earth then will not turn to naught, but they will be changed from the form in which they now exist to a better form. As John the Evangelist said, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will not indeed be others created, but these will be renewed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but will nevertheless continue, for they will be cleansed by fire from the form which they now have and will yet stand ever in their own nature. Then will the sun be sevenfold brighter than it is now, and the moon will have the light of the sun. 
David verily prophesied of Christ's advent in these words. God shall come manifestly, and he will not keep silence. Fire shall burn in his sight, and round about him shall be a mighty storm. The storm will wash whatsoever the fire burns. Of that day the prophet Zephaniah said, The great day of God is very near at hand, and exceedingly swift. Bitter shall be the voice of that day, there shall the strong be afflicted. That day is a day of wrath, and a day of affliction, and anxiety, a day of misery, and wail, a day of darkness, and dimness, a day of the trumpet, and of outcry. My brothers, set the remembrance of this day before your eyes, and whatsoever now appears to be trouble, it shall be mitigated on comparison with it. Correct your lives, and change your conduct. Punish your evil deeds with weeping, withstand the temptations of the devil, eschew evil, and do good, and ye will be by so much the more secure at the advent of the eternal judge, as ye now with terror anticipate his severity. The prophet said that the great day of God is very near at hand and very swift. Though there were yet another thousand years to that day, it would not be long, for whatsoever ends is short and quick, and will be as it had been when it is in ended but though it were long to that day as it is not yet will our time not be long and at our ending it will be judged whether we rest in torment or shall await the common doom let us therefore profit by the time which god has given us and merit the everlasting life with whom liveth and reigneth forever and ever amen talks at advent Homilies and Reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.